That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Take Two. It is June 30th. I'm Heidi Hatch with KUTV2 News. Joining me today is former U.S. Attorney Brett Tolman, if you don't remember back that far. He was appointed by George Bush. That was 2006. Served for about four years. Uh, Worked with President Trump more recently to pass the First Step Act in criminal justice reform. And now um, heading up right on crime. Brett, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Heidi, for having me. So uh, you're home in Utah today, but you travel a lot and you're doing a lot these days. Tell me uh, what your main bread and butter is and what you're up to. I do travel a lot. Probably I, I thought my life would settle down a little bit after being U.S. attorney, but it only got busier. So I work in Washington, D.C. and in Texas and in Utah. I have a law firm called the Tolman Group. Um, but my real passion right now is as executive director of Right on Crime, where we're trying to change the criminal justice system across the country and nationally. And that's that's uh, based out of Texas, associated with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And what is your goal? Because you say you want to change the criminal justice system. What needs fixing? Uh, so many, so many things. If you think about Right now, the recidivism rate across the country, so those who get out of prison and the likelihood of them committing another crime, uh, it, it is hovers between 70 and 80 percent. That's high. That's really high. So, you know, in essence, that's your measurement of success or failure of the criminal justice system. And there's not a business out there or a government agency that would operate and function at 80 percent failure rate. And there's a lot of factors for it. Um, there's, you know, in some areas we're, we're over criminalizing and over punishing low level and drug user cases while we have 50% of our homicide cases are unsolved. So we, we are, some of it's a priority problem. Some's a resource problem. You also have issues in policing. And what my, what I tell people is I want conservatives being the ones to um, change the criminal justice system because we don't forget about victims and we don't want to compromise public safety. But we certainly acknowledge that there's things that we can do to make the criminal justice system actually work. One in three Americans right now, Heidi, have a criminal record. That's high. One in three? One in three in the United States. So it's over 100 million people have a criminal record. And when you get to those levels, you're impacting their ability to have a job, the stability in your community. You know, businesses are screaming for work, you know, workforce and labor force uh, shortages. And, and, you know, we can, we can do a lot to solve a lot of problems in our communities if we'll have a better uh, criminal justice system in this country. I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. I don't know that anyone thinks that it's working very well. I want to talk more about some criminal cases coming up in just a minute, but today the Supreme Court's been busy. Uh, last rulings for their session came out today, and a big one that I think uh, they waited to the last day where a lot of people were waiting on 
was the school debt forgiveness ruling where President uh, Biden really used this as a promise in his last campaign that student debt would be forgiven for many people, 10000 up to 20000 for other people. And this divided people. Some people on you know, the left and the right were upset for different reasons where it wasn't enough money or some people saying it was too much money altogether. And then interestingly enough, you had people like former Speaker Pelosi who was saying, you know, this isn't a decision that the president should be making anyways. This is a decision that should be left for Congress. Tell me your first thoughts today with the ruling that came down. It was a six to three, kind of along what people would think are party lines, although I don't think they really exist in the Supreme Court to the same extent people believe they are. But it did come down along those ideological lines that people expected today. Yeah, I, I fully expected that this would be the decision. I'm disappointed that it wasn't a nine to zero decision, but let's let's step back. There, is seri- there are serious issues with higher education and the cost of it. We've allowed universities to bloat and do, to blow up their tuition costs and 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 it's a, it's impact has called for this you know this hue and cry across the United States uh, of for debt relief. However, Biden himself and you you referenced Nancy Pelosi, who was uh, coincidentally who was cited by Justice Roberts in the majority opinion uh, as as indicating that the president did not have authority. We were all in agreement. Um, you know, decade ago, we would have all been in agreement left and right that the president by fiat executive order cannot do this, that it is exclusively within the role of Congress. What changed is no longer the, the sense that the president ought to be limited by what they know uh, may be struck down by the court, but instead to just do it because they gain popularity and political points. And Heidi, it's not just Democrats. Um, I've blamed Republican presidents as well who have expanded the executive order power. And, and until Congress gets really serious about it, we're, we're going to constantly be hitting up against the Supreme Court trying to rein in that expansion of the executive branch. It does seem with each new president that's kind of a ping pong back and forth with executive orders where one comes in and then just shreds up the last one. So it is interesting to see that happen. Uh, just a few minutes ago before we came in here to start recording, President Biden uh, addressed the country and said that this isn't over yet. He's not done fighting. And he has some other ways that he's hoping to accomplish the same thing. Will this end up back at the Supreme Court again or what happens next? Because I think a lot of people are at home going, OK, do I pay my student loan? Do I not? Because maybe he's still going to get rid of it. Yeah, it's sadly, I think it's going to go back because there's too many political points to for the president to say he's going to do something and then unroll something that unveil something that's that's not legal. I, I think what he's contemplating right now is he's going to do he's going to do an off ramp, a 12 month off ramp, meaning you're going to be required to pay. But if you if you default, they're not going to come in and, and, and foreclose and go after go after you. Um, which is almost meaningless then. It becomes a deferment in, in a lot of ways. And then in the meantime, they will be looking for using the Higher Education Act and some other provisions that they, they claim that they have you know, legal authority to try to do. It is, it is long held law that the president, the executive branch, and this includes his cabinet, the executive branch may have power to delay or postpone or defer those debts. 
but not to not to get rid of them. And so we'll see. We'll see. We'll we'll probably be here again. All right. So next year, you think next year is early? We could be discussing this, or does it take a lot longer than that for the wheels of justice to turn? Well, it it does. To I don't know if there's any that are in front of the circuits. If there if there is an effort, I think it would be probably within two two years. If if uh, a new strategy and a new executive order came came out, I would say the soonest is about two years. Interesting. And there could be a whole other podcast, as you mentioned, for another day and another time about fixing higher education, because anyone who's gone to school has kids who are going to school. (laughs) You know how high the costs are. I look back to my daughter that graduated a few years ago, and I'm thinking, I should have paid 50% of that because during the pandemic, nobody was showing up or doing anything. But here we are. We paid anyways. So I didn't even get to go to my daughter's graduation at Boston College, and the tuition was the same, and they had no 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 instructors in in the classroom. <laughs> I know what a bummer, huh? It's a it's a strange world we've been living in. Um, speaking of college, yesterday we got the ruling on affirmative action, and the SCOTUS decision there was there's actually two different votes six three and six two. Uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, I believe, abstained from the Harvard decision. We're hearing what you'd expect from both the left and the right on this issue. As an attorney, and as you look at the affirmative action, what sticks out to you with these rulings that came out? Well, you know, if you don't like the ruling, then, um, you know, what, what you're arguing for is to actually change the Constitution and change the 14th Amendment in the Constitution. It's very plain, and, and in, in this one, in fact, this case, is, is, is even easier than the other ones to decide because our Constitution and the 14th Amendment is so, so crystal clear on utilizing, on, on depriving or granting by the government um, um, benefits or the deprivation of benefits based on race. And there's many that have, you know, argued this issue and they're arguing it from a sociological issue and the disparate impact that is that they perceive in the difficulty of those that are, you know, those that are people of color trying to trying to get into some of the higher education. But the affirmative action decision, if people don't like it, they need to go back to the drawing board on the Constitution, not try to enforce it through the use of the court. Um, to to manipulate what is pretty clear, crystal clear, you know, law from from that perspective. And you know, I I think some of the the fiercest advocates for this decision are are, are many of the conservative African American lawyers in this country who have have a different impression. You, you look at Thomas Sowell and 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 many others that have. Have very clearly indicated that the um, you know the issue with affirmative action it is that it is the example of the the racism of low expectations and and that it's more concerning to those that truly care about the African American community to expand on their their qualifications their access and, and what they do. There's other ways um, that they they make very very good arguments for, but I think this case is 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 difficult because those that are upset about it and analyzing it are are doing so based out of emotion and they are not acknowledging how firmly rooted it is in the Fourteenth Amendment. 
One thing that I thought was interesting is somebody retweeted, so I ended up seeing it yesterday, is the Washington Post actually did a poll knowing that this decision was coming last fall. And when they talked to people of different races, white, black, Hispanic, and Asian, overall 63% uh, believed that it was time to get rid of affirmative action for whites. It was 66%, blacks 47 Hispanic 60%, and Asian 65%. So this ruling really comes down to even if you were voting as a country, this is something that would pass. It's something that we saw in California in 1996 that passed as well, too. When you listen to people who study this in California, the interesting thing is is that they're actually seeing um, maybe higher admittance into college and then maybe more importantly is graduation rates for uh, black students and uh, Latino students, which I think is interesting because they're kind of a test tube that's been doing this for you know a couple decades longer than the rest of us have seen it working. Yeah, I think that's the most important point to be made on this decision actually is the one you're making, Heidi, is let's, I like to, to say that, you know, for example, I don't want, ever wanna make a change to the criminal justice system unless I'm doing it based on data and research and best practices. Well, we, we actually are seeing now, and I saw some of those reports that came out of California and others where um, there's a benefit and, and an improvement. And I think it teaches us a very, very difficult lesson. And that is, you know, where, where great is expected then you know achievement is is greater and and we we have to raise our expectations for everyone uh, in this country in order to perform better do you think that a lot of where we have these gaps in education go back to some of the problems you are trying to work on whether it's crime or education in some of these harder districts or bigger cities where we can maybe solve some of these problems from the ground up instead of legislation or is there more legislation coming that we might need to fix some of the problems? Oh, 100% uh, accurate, great, great point and question. If you look at the criminal justice system has disparately impacted um, our, our minorities in our inner cities. And when I say disparately, um, you know, it's been as blatant as in the federal law, for example, where they would, they would punish possession and use of crack cocaine 100 times longer sentences than powder cocaine. Well, it was your inner cities that are using crack cocaine and your suburbs using powder cocaine. And so we, we saw directly longer prison sentences, more aggressive um, um, arrest and investigation and prosecution than those that were using powder cocaine. So what does it translate into? It translates into a much higher incarceration rate and a much higher arrest rate. You have those and you have difficulty believing that you can go to school, not to mention that most schools for the past 30 decades or 30 years, three decades, has refused to allow admit, admittance to someone who has a felony. And so it, they, they very much tie together. If we, if we really want to make a big impact in a lot of our, our inner cities and our communities, we have to change policing, we have to change opportunities, and we have to, to, to understand its impact on their ability to educate, train themselves, and to be employed. Well, um, I think there's so many things that I think hopefully people will be looking forward to in the future. What would you say to some of the people who I've seen um, black doctors or black lawyers who are on the other side of the issue saying, you know what, maybe I wouldn't have been here if it weren't for affirmative action. Is there an answer for people who are saying, you know what, maybe I wouldn't be here and maybe there aren't going to be more people like me because of this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you are driven to get 
through law school and through um, medical school, you you're you're driven to do it without um, an, an assist from you know affirmative action. And and you look at Ben Carson, who's very vocal about this, and says, you know, you start lowering the expectation and you start lowering the the requirements, and you're you're going to start producing you know less and less. Um, successful and, and less qualified, and you're taking away their the achievement that they will they will be able to have. And I, I think Ben Carson has it right when he analyzes this, and he put out a statement yesterday that said that this is one of the most important um, decisions to help the African American communities to to achieve more and to become more successful. It's that soft bigotry of low expectations that many have discovered when they when they really look at the issue. Before we um, start talking about some of the legal issues that we see surrounding our presidents and past presidents, uh, one more ruling today that came out, and a lot of people are saying that this is a slap in the face of LGBTQ couples, families, but this ruling uh, was a woman who built websites, and she strictly did not want to build websites for gay couples who were getting married. Uh, when you read the headlines, it seems vastly different than maybe what I look at when I go through and read you know, the full rulings. Explain to us exactly what happened and where this is, because it seems to me this is um, ruling on the side of having religious free thinking and the First Amendment, maybe not even just on this issue, but pick your issue, you're allowed to decide how you deal with that in business. Yeah, I think the Supreme Court's language that they used is very interesting in this case. In, in essence, they said the government cannot, you know, the, the government cannot force a citizen to embrace a certain speech, a certain First Amendment speech. They can't force you to believe or participate or to engage in um, a particular First Amendment speech. And, and that is what the, the court decided. And, and it does so based on an analysis that an individual is allowed to choose what kind of speech they, they want to engage in. That's very, very different than the restaurant that won't serve African-Americans that the Supreme Court had to utilize the Equal Protection Act clause. Um, here, it was a, a, an individual who was willing to provide services to um, wedding services to LGBTQ um, individuals, but did not want to engage in the speech that would come in the creation uh, the unique creation of the website. And so a very, very difficult one for the court, but understandably so, there were many that actually thought that this one might be decided uh, unanimous or near unanimous um, because of that distinction in that, you know, we, we have to be careful when our, our uh, First Amendment, you know, knocks up against the religious freedom and the uh, it, when it knocks up against itself, so to speak, and there was a lot of language in there that that the uh, dissent was actually, you know, um, turning its turning its ammunition on its own ar arguments, and and there's some some truth to that. 
When you go through and you read the headlines that came out from this today, I'm going to read a few of these, but they say Supreme Court rules businesses can refuse service to LGBTQ plus customers. Supreme Court rules businesses can discriminate against gay people. Supreme Court limits LGBTQ protections under the law. So when you go through, um, it makes people wonder, can I as an LGBTQ person, if go into a restaurant and be told that I can't be served, as you were mentioning there? Or can someone discriminate against me because of my sexual orientation? Or is that vastly different than saying that you won't make a website? And can there yeah, be questions in the law? Yeah, there definitely will. I, th I expect there will be more, more cases certified to the Supreme Court on this. But it is not, it, it is not a close call that a restaurant cannot you know, refuse to serve. A, a member of the LGBTQ community. I don't agree with the headlines that are arguing that this is that kind of step backward. It has to be a, a, a firmly held and rooted, you know, religious belief, and that has its own level of scrutiny on it. And it has to be um, one that um, gets you to the analysis that you're actually exercising, you know, your right to free speech. Um, that's not going to happen in a restaurant. And this was very unique, and I think it's very limited in terms of its scope uh, because of that. Um, there's some on social media, if you look today, they're worried that maybe this means the next step is that their gay marriage could get turned over. Do you see any link or possibility in that? It's been about eight years, I think, since LGBTQ marriages were protected under the law of the land. Yeah, I don't. I don't see that they are going to overturn Obergefell, and I don't think this um, this court even. They have been pretty pretty clear that even many of the conservatives on the court have uh, indicated that that's not a ruling that would be overturned um, by the Supreme Court. I I don't see it. I know that people, you know, they they live in that kind of fear, but. To me, legally, I can see a big distinction between um, abortion, for example, and indicating that you're you're not you're not creating a federal right to abortion, but you are going to leave it to the states, which it was for for many many years. Um, as you know, their reversal that the court did there, uh, that case was fraught with with issues and legal issues, and everybody knew, knew that that it was. You don't see the same um, same under uh, undercurrent and, and philosophy and, and legal openings for somebody to reverse uh, overfill. When you mention abortion, it makes me think uh, this ruling. You tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm understanding this correctly or incorrectly. But this ruling for this woman who doesn't want to make um, the websites for, let's say, LGBTQ marriages, I would think it would go in the opposite direction, too. Let's say if the president has something that you agree or disagree with, that if you were, you know, in favor of abortion and let's say the president at the time was, you know, in the opposite direction, they couldn't for some reason make you create a website in your business you didn't want to that either was pro-abortion um, or against abortion or That's pick right. your issue, vaccines or against them. But if it was something that you really believed uh, against that you wouldn't have to as part of your job build that website or do that for them. That's exactly right. And and someone that wanted to build a, an abortion, wanted to hire somebody to build an abortion website, that would come within the exact same analysis. And and so there's they're very different when you're substantively um, addressing the right, like like 
marriage that is rooted in, you know, the, the marriage rulings that came down got rooted into, you know, the, the firm, firm provisions of the Constitution that extend to all, all people regardless of, of, of race or religion or now sexual preference. Um, very different than the exercise and being forced to choose which First Amendment speech you will embrace and which you won't by the government. Okay, we've got to talk about a few issues because I know that you're tight on time too, but I want to talk about a couple of, while we have an attorney on the line, I feel like we should take um, calls from people about their legal trouble since we've got you, we should answer all of our legal questions. But right now, it seems like we have more need to talk to a lawyer federally with everything going on than we ever have before. But uh, we have President Trump's indictment and charges coming. We also have Hunter Biden uh, just this last week accepting a plea deal. And then after the plea deal, we also have a whistleblower saying that maybe these charges should have been a lot worse. My understanding is Hunter Biden has um, pleaded now to some misdemeanor charges for tax evasion or not paying his taxes, and then also a gun charge. And depending if you're talking to people from the left or the right, he's, you know, stepping up, he's taking responsibility for what he's done and doing the right thing. If you talk to the other side, he's getting off, you know, scot-free for a gun charge that maybe somebody else, if you're going to find a rapper or someone who lived in Sandy or Magna, Utah or someplace else, would face something far different. Uh, Tell me from your legal standpoint, um, where these charges lie? Well, I have many... Many friends on, on, you know, on the left, Democrats, that um, will agree with what I'm going to say. And um, if they have spent any time in the federal criminal law, they will agree with this. And that is the plea deal and the behavior of DOJ is absolutely antithetical to their 30-plus years of history. It's um, it, It's goes against their internal uh, policy memos uh, established by Ashcroft and Eric Holder and their refusal and their participation in in um, narrowing and shutting down the investigation are all things that make us go there there is not a time in history in which DOJ has ever granted such a sweetheart deal to an individual with so much evidence of, of such serious and, and broad criminal behavior. I, I have dug into this issue quite substantially. There are, that I could find in DOJ data, uh, 189,000 illegal possession of firearms cases, not one diversion given. And a diversion is in essence saying, we'd like to charge you with a felony, but you know, we may have some evidence issues or we might, we might have some, some reason to, to give you this, but we'll divert that felony for a year or two years as long as you agree to, you know, do what we ask you to do, and then you won't get the felony. So it's incredibly rare, so rare that the hundreds of thousands of cases brought by DOJ over the history of this country, they amount to less than 1% of all of those cases, and I can find no cases of a user in possession of a firearm or, or, or any other illegal possession of a firearm. I myself did hundreds of these. I was never given the option. And the reason was is DOJ under Ashcroft, again under Holder and, 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 and under Merrick Garland, um, issued policies that they were going to treat gun crimes 
with a zero tolerance um, uh, uh, response and that they would charge the highest provable offenses, uh, which meant you tried to get the longest sentences you could. On average, a person with no real criminal history and no other criminal behavior that possessed a firearm who was a drug user uh, was serving almost four years in federal prison. So you think that, let's say this were, a lot of people say it's a two-tiered justice system, you think that he would get at least four years? Uh, at least if that was the only charge. And then you go to the tax cases, and, and Heidi, if you and I had um, you know, miscalculated our taxes and we owed the government and we just sort of went underground and tried to, because we didn't have the money and we didn't, you know, we didn't want to pay it, um, you, might, you might get a misdemeanor charge on, on that if you worked with them when they came and interviewed you and talked to you, and, and, and yet that's not what happened. We have not just the whistleblower and Bob Alinsky and everyone else that's come forward to say this is actually the behavior. If you just look at what evidence they, they do have that, they're, that form the basis of the charges that they're bringing, there's not a single prosecutor historically or, or a, a, a leader in DOJ that would have allowed a misdemeanor under those circumstances. You have millions of dollars brought in, hidden put into multiple dummy corporations, LLCs that were formed, dispersed out among multiple individuals in the family. And then you, you did, not only did you not pay the taxes, you moved the money around so that you wouldn't have the, the ability to quickly and easily identify whose income it was because you didn't want the source of that income to be revealed. Now we have the whistleblower on top of that and you understand that DOJ actually interfered with the investigation, tipped off the defense team of search warrants, refused to let uh, the supervisory special, special agent Shapley um, pursue the full scope, what, what is called sourcing uh, the, the tax fraud. Sourcing would be to identify all of the spokes of the wagon wheel of fraud and to determine how much money was moved, the money laundering counts would be included, the conspiracy would be included, and what you have is one of the more massive, corrupt, fraudulent uh, uh, behavior of, of a public official and his family, um, and, and the IRS and DOJ blatantly refused to actually pursue the investigation in a way that they have historically done, that you and I, anybody, any Joe average citizen would be looking at decades in federal prison for what Hunter Biden, the evidence uh, reveals against Hunter Biden and, and others. Is there actual black and white proof right now of the millions of dollars, or is this just taking yes. somebody's word on it right now? No, there is black and white proof. The, the basis for the the basis for the misdemeanor charge is our our millions of dollars that came in, but the um, the the two things the investigation by the House uh, Oversight Committee um, on Weaponization have the bank statements and have the the movement of the funds to the Bidens, and they have they have traced. $10 million to date, and they estimate it'll be near $40 million. When you add that to what the special agent indicated, that the evidence that they have right now in their possession suggests greater than $8.3 million. 
And on one of the, the, the lines of investigation, DOJ let the statute of limitations run without bringing it. And that the, the, those taxes, which amount to roughly a half million dollars, have just vanished. Taxes that were owed, that they identified, that they evaded, that Hunter evaded, and, and those are all black and white you know, evidence that, that we have and we know. This was, this was plain and simply, in my opinion, this was a very ugly chapter that will go down in the history of DOJ because it showed that, that regular individuals who get investigated for this have no chance of a diversion, have no chance of coming out of it with a misdemeanor. And yet the son of the most powerful person in the country um, the, where the FBI had validated the, the laptop as early as 2019, that's a year before they, they tried to make us believe that uh, it was Russian disinformation. They, they knew the validity of it and the evidence on there. So it's the, in, my, in my view, it's the ugliest chapter, not just because we're letting corruption and we're, and we're, not, we're not fully investigating the, the crimes, but because of the many cases I worked on and prosecuted and the many people who are sitting in prison where their families must say, boy, it sure must be nice to be able to get a diversion on, on something so serious as a felony. Uh, on the flip side, you worked for years, as you mentioned, about you know criminal justice reform. So is there a place for someone uh, like um, Hunter Biden to have maybe that plea deal because we don't want people sitting in prison and we think we can fix him and he'll be fine if he does some community service and works it out? You know, great question. There, if the, if the Department of Justice had, had uh, for example, embraced, and, and I tried to get two different, white, three different White Houses to embrace meaningful changes to the criminal justice system that might, might take a different approach to um, addicts and users that, that make bad decisions that would not make those decisions but for being on, on drugs. Um, and we incarcerate too long in this country, and it has a incredibly detrimental impact. If they had embraced that, and they, they and that was available, and it it became part of the administration of justice in this country, then it would be it would not be offensive to see the government um, reaching a deal with Hunter Biden or or with Brett Tolman or Heidi Hatch, and 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 saying, hey, we want you to get back on your feet. Those are, in my view, redemption and rehabilitation need to be more part of the conversation. But they, they haven't. And what they've done is they've, they've gone the opposite direction. Ironically, President Biden signed a bill into law that expanded the maximum penalty for a drug user in possession of a firearm from 10 years to 15 years. How unbelievable is it? That is significant. That they, yeah, they pushed that this president pushed to be tougher on users in possession of firearms, uh, and then his son gets this deal. So you're saying uh, that maybe there are, you know, two tiers of the justice system, and you'd be fine if it were stricter for everyone or maybe looser for everyone, but there has to be, you know, a, the same pl level playing field, I guess. That's right. And, and the two-tier justice system is devolving into a, you know, we'll go after an ideology that we don't like. Now it's conservatives. We don't like, we don't like their, their, you know, their um, picketing and protesting Planned Parenthood. We don't like 
the Supreme Court justices on, on the conservative side. We don't like Trump and we're, we're fine with um, Biden and Hillary Clinton having possession of classified documents and even destroying evidence <laughs> or even, even allowing for the Chinese to, to infiltrate her server and to access classified information. We're okay with that, but we're not with Trump. So how do we fix that? Because Trump's indicted right now. Obviously, Hillary, they've moved beyond it. So if the question is that we need to hold people to higher account, does that mean that maybe you've got to start with someone and Trump might have to be the first someone that they hold accountable and they do so going forward? Or do you have to judge him on the merits of other cases that they've passed by in the past as well? Well, I I think you can't. You can't do the Trump case and not do the Biden case and and not do the Hillary case. And the list is longer too, and Mike Pence included. You you have unlawful possession. It's it's even more so in them than it is Trump. Trump, you have all kinds of issues with the the presidential record back, and and those have to be litigated, and and they will. But you can't do one and not do the others. And so, they should not be bringing the Trump one. But they sh- we should also not have people in charge like Comey and Ray and, and Garland, who are willing to say, okay, we'll give a pass to these on the left, but we're going to prosecute this guy because we really don't like him. He is running for president, coincidentally. We don't like him, and we think he's really bad for the country, and he's responsible for the January 6th insurrection, and so it's justified that we're going to disparately treat individuals based on their ideology. That's unacceptable. I don't care whether you charged them all, fine, or don't charge them all, but stop picking winners and losers. Put someone in office that will say, I will go as hard on a, on a Republican as I will a Democrat and vice versa. When you look specifically just at Trump's case, uh, did he break the law? I mean, we don't have all of the evidence at this point, but we even have a call that's been released now where he seemingly probably makes it look very bad for himself that he did have documents in hand that he shouldn't and he was sharing them with people that he shouldn't have. Is that a problem where his case, if it moves forward and it seems like it's going to, that um, he did break the law? Well, I'm not, I am no fan of many things that President Trump has done and said. Um, But I cannot for a second having gone through that indictment multiple times and, and, and not walk away thinking, I know what it's like to charge a case. I can get a grand jury to bring an indictment against an individual in this country. I don't care who it is. I, I would have 300,000 plus statutes with criminal penalties that I can now use. Um, but the di- distinction is, um, in, my, in my mind, there is not clarity that a president who maintains their, their, their clearance, who no question they are allowed to have classified documents, that was clearly ruled by a federal judge in, in assessing whether Bill Clinton could have classified information that in his sock drawer. So there's no question he can. Uh, can he reference it? Can he refer to it? Those are questions maybe we'll get more clarity on, but I don't think it justifies a charge when you haven't brought any of those charges to date. And when you have Jim Comey who says no reasonable prosecutor would charge Hillary Clinton for the, for the actions that, that she took and the classified documents and the server and the, you know, the cell phones being obliterated, 
and and bit bleach being used to wipe out the, the server. No reasonable prosecutor would bring that case. If that's the, if that's right, and if Comey's right on that, then then this case should not be brought against President Trump as, as well. Interesting. Well, there's no shortage of legal topics to talk about in the country right yeah. now. If people want to see your take on other issues, because they'll keep coming up, where do they find you online? Yeah, please uh, go to Twitter. It's at uh, Tolman Brett. Uh, you can also go to the website rightoncrime.com, and you'll see all the great work we're doing in 14 states and nationally and, and hoping to grow. How do people get involved in that if that's something they'd like to see criminal justice reform happen in their own state? I'd love to, love to have them get involved. There are, you know, of course, advocacy groups in every state that are working on it, but we need to hear from citizens who say, look, I want a justice system that keeps me safe and puts bad, violent people in prison, but can we also make it more fair or can we do things to help them when they get out of prison to get a job so that they're not committing crimes again? So reach out to your, your state representatives and your federal representatives and reach out to Ride on Crime or other organizations and say, hey, we want to get involved. And you'll quickly find yourself with opportunities to help. Well, thank you for having this conversation. I lied to you earlier and told you I probably only needed you for 15 to 20, and you have been kind enough to <laughs> stick around for nearly 45 minutes because thank it's you. so it interesting good. to talk about all these issues. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today, and uh, we will chat again soon. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you. Thank you.